Welcome back to the KI Prime podcast with me, Alina Jenkins. In this episode, I'm talking with Klaas Karlgren, whose area of research focuses on understanding the gaps and challenges that learners run into during their learning activities. After finishing his PhD in human-machine interaction, he came to the Karolinska Institute to start his postdoc, and he continued his work on designing, creating and developing technologies to support and analyse learning in the field of medical education. Since he arrived at Karolinska in 2004, this has remained his focus of work, using technology and simulations to help people reflect and analyse their performance. When I spoke to him for this podcast, he told me a core part of his earlier studies were around philosophy and how it helped shape his future work. Yes, I have studied theoretical philosophy before my, my PhD, and those courses were maybe the best I ever took. Maybe you may wonder, how do I use that? But I find those courses turned out to become really useful for me to navigate among all the different theories that we have and make use of in medical education in education psychology and cognitive science and all these areas. They help me understand what I should focus on in my research and maybe also which types of methodologies and methods even are uh, useful, more useful than others for the problems we're working on. And it, it may be surprising, but I, I, I find really practical use of that daily to, to remind myself of my favorite philosophers in the area, <laughs> which, which tend to focus on, on the practice, practices of uh, learning and practices of how we use knowledge, uh, how we speak, how we talk, how we use our language and our concepts to make ourselves understood and to to make others understand what we're doing. So I use this these insights that these theoretical philosophers have made to help me understand that that's what I should focus on also in medical education, namely the practices of what learners are doing, what teachers and what teachers are doing, what they're doing and what they're saying in practice, the details of that. Could you say that a lot of what you do is simply studying how we communicate with each other? It is, yes. And I especially tend to focus on the details of that, how, how they use words and concepts in, in a very sort of concrete, practical matter and study that with different methods rather than asking them maybe afterwards about what they liked about a course or what they thought was useful, uh, which, is, which is what you often do in med- medical education research you, um, and, or any educational research you you have a course or you teach something and then you hand out a questionnaire afterwards or may, maybe you interview a few of them and uh, of the participants and ask, so what did you think? What was good? What was not so bad? And that's one way of doing research. You get, you collect people's opinions about what they went through. That can be very useful. However, people are known, we, we all are, even as researchers, we're, we're quite bad at making observations and we don't remember the details of what we did. 
we don't remember what happened last Tuesday at 11 o'clock. <laughs> we, we have a, we generalize and we remember certain things, but forget many others. So um, if we want to know what actually happened, we have to use other kinds of methods to add to that, the, the knowledge we can get by asking people afterwards. So it sounds like you're always finding ways to overcome challenges. Challenges itself is, is often I realize is what is in focus. What are the challenges that learners run into? That's what I find interesting. And it has to do with that. What I just started off talking about is how do we get to, to the important challenges? The ones that students or learners, because I'm not only looking at students, I look at practitioners or other learners as well. How do we identify the, cha- the real important challenges if people are not so good at remembering what they did last Tuesday at 11 o'clock? That, that I find, is a huge cha- challenge. How, how do we identify these and how do we help the learners deal with these challenges if they, if they don't even remember them themselves? So that's, that's one huge challenge. And there are methods for that. I, for instance, I... I like to use video as a tool to look at what people are actually doing and what they're saying. And then video is so powerful and because you can look at what happened, the process over and over and over again, and you can, you can play it slowly or you can play it quickly as well, which can be helpful for you to uncover details and patterns that you wouldn't see otherwise. So that's one way of doing it. Or you can, Use other methods like diaries or there are modern versions of diaries using mobiles and apps and other ways of collecting data about the process that took place rather than asking them afterwards. This idea of using videos is becoming more and more popular. Do you ever find that the participants feel uncomfortable because they're on camera or change their behaviour? And does that have any impact on the results you gather? Yes, yeah, indeed, it does. Always. It's horrible to be recorded, even like this. It's, it's, we're very aware of the camera all the time. So it is well known that it does affect us. However, we get used to it. And um, I've recorded a lot of teams working together. And, uh, after a few rounds, a few exercises, you get used to it. And it, it's a matter of getting used to it as well. I, if we run simulations where we record the participants... And we go through the videos. The first round is always the most uncomfortable one. You only look at yourself and forget to look at the others. You don't look at the teamwork that took place. You you look at your haircut and your clothes and you listen to your voice, which sounds awkward. But after a few rounds, you get used to it. And uh, so it's we have to force ourselves through that, I think, that <laughs> embarrassment of looking at yourself. I know you've written that formal education is not providing adequate support and opportunity for acquiring necessary competencies. So it sounds like your job is harder than it should be because you're having to start at a later stage in someone's education. Yes, that maybe sounded harsh, but but there is a challenge in providing what learners need. If, If you're thinking about formal education, what they end up doing afterwards, of course, it's difficult to give learners and students that. And maybe a university or school doesn't or shouldn't have only that role. But if if we want to prepare students for for something that they run into afterwards, we really have to think about the challenges that they run into afterwards in, in a clinical practice, for instance, and try to 
study that practice. We have a project starting on that right now. What what are nursing students who are becoming specialists? What are the problems that they run into during their clinical practice immediately after their training? Can we use those experiences somehow to run simulations which address exactly those problems? So there are, of course, many, many types of problems that you could lift there, and not all are are the ones that should be addressed at a university or a school, but many of them maybe should. Uh, from a larger perspective, of course, society is changing in many ways. We're using new technologies and we're collaborating in new ways. And we need to take into account these changes as well. And we can't go on teaching the same way as we've already done, been doing all the time. Going back to using video, I was speaking with Professor Brian Hodges earlier in the series about the advancement of AI in medical education. And there's no question it will certainly bring huge benefits to what you do. But thinking about how we communicate effectively, do you have any concerns about AI negatively impacting this? Yes, there are, of course, concerns with that. But it's so early. We, we're using so little of it right now. So I think the concern right now is to ask ourselves, how could we possibly make use of it? And there, there are so many projects that are just starting now trying to look at it. But yes, of course, there are so many problems and challenges with it having to do with uh, ethics, legal issues, of course. If we um, hand over some autonomy to an AI tool, there's the obvious discussion then who's responsible. If you have an expert uh, assisting you as a tool, is there a risk that you um, hand over responsibility to it and you stop uh, reflecting on all the decisions you're making in the same way that you would have done without the tool? Of course, that's one of the obvious challenges that you have to deal with. But there's so much to do in this field still that we're just getting started with using AI, I think. As you said earlier, you use lots of different methods and frameworks in your research, including simulations. Can you tell us more about those? I think simulation is a really useful tool. It's becoming more and more I mean, everybody is doing simulation in medicine t- today, and it, it wasn't the case only a few decades ago. But the question is how to, to simulate, because simulation gives you valuable experiences, which can be quite realistic, and that can, uh, that can be good, really good for learning. You notice things, and you can discuss them and reflect on them, and then you can improve your behavior and your teamwork performance. However, just taking part in something, just the experience of something is often not enough. You need to do something more. You need to, and that's why we video record our, all our simulations. You need to start reflecting critically on what you did. And we see that often that typically a simulation course has maybe four cases that you go through. You take part in the first one, and very often the participants are quite happy with what, with what happened. Well, this went pretty well. We collaborated nicely and we solved the case. And so they're pretty satisfied and happy, which is good. The problem is that the the more experienced instructors can see that, well, that was good, but there were several things that could have been improved. There were maybe even problems and and, uh, risks here that we all missed. And that's why, why, why it's good to run simulations several times because the second or third or fourth time you watch yourself on, on the video, you start seeing things that could be improved. And you can discuss them with the others. 
And the model you were referring to, the UPEA model, was one such tool to help participants systematically go through a simulation to discover it's an analytic tool to see what happens. That We can see that uh, the participants, to begin with, are quite unaware of problems, but they're happy. Then they see, they notice and identify a problem that, oops, we should not have been doing that and we should maybe have called for help before or uh, I should have handed over a responsibility to you earlier or something like this. I was distracted by a test that was given, handed over to me or something like that. And, and, and people can get caught up with, with such a problem. So the, the important thing here is for a facilitator to help learners move on and, and not become self-critically, self-critical and blame oneself, but see explanations to why did this happen and are there alternative ways of acting in the future to avoid the problem altogether. So um, not just taking part in experiencing a simulation is often not enough. You need tools to help you see things and video is one and you need the help of an experienced facilitator who can help you see things really see them on the video that you that may risk go uh, unnoticed otherwise so uh, that's something that i've been working quite a bit with different kinds of tools they can be pedagogical tools or software tools to help people annotate, for instance, a video to mark things. Where are the difficulties here? What we sh- what should we talk about more? A few episodes ago, I was speaking with Tarusha Nardu and her work on the divide between the global north and the global south. And I know you've been looking at how some of your research translates into other languages and cultures. Oh, yes. Yeah. I've had one PhD student working on that. I have another one working on that right now. And we're studying cases. We have video recorded cases in in South Africa, and we've interviewed experts from around the world about cases like this. And we're working on what are called virtual patients as one tool to help learners who can be very experienced surgeons or physicians in the Nordic countries who need more experience of these types of cases. Where virtual patient, it's a patient that you, you meet online on your computer you get this patient and it's a case that you need to solve with a focus on the decision-making that you have to go through to take care of the patient. You examine the patient, run tests, and try to diagnose the patient and come up with a treatment for the patient. So, so, so that's one way of addressing it. And of course, we see also that when we're interviewing experts, they may have different ideas about what is the right way of going about managing this patient. So there, there can be various ways of doing it, but you can, you can build that into a virtual patient with different options. You can either do this first or you do that first. So using virtual patients is actually a good way of, I think, sharing information about these very rare exceptional cases. Virtual patients are a great example of how you've kept working during a pandemic where for many there have been so many restrictions. Have there been many impacts from COVID-19 on your research? Personally, I've been quite lucky, but I have many co-workers and many students who ran into a lot of trouble who are about to collect data. It became almost impossible to meet people and do run studies anywhere because you couldn't meet them. Of course, a lot of people are now thinking about how can we educate online using virtual solutions. So yes, virtual patients really is maybe one part of the solution. We have to uh, meet online in different ways. In um, healthcare, it's 
especially difficult if uh, what you want to teach is how you work with a patient. It's very often a physical, tactile uh, challenge or task, and and, uh, representing that online is difficult. I know there are people who are trying to do this online, and uh, for instance, you can have students online, and then you have the teacher with the patient and being instructed by the students at a distance. But that's, of course, very, very challenging to replace that. But personally, I've been quite lucky. I have uh, things to do. I have a lot of online meetings, and we can study the data that I already have. I feel much more sorry for many of my colleagues who are trying to to collect data, because that that just stopped this spring. Given your experience, do you think online meetings, seminars and conferences will become more prolific in the future? And are they as good as face-to-face communication? Absolutely. There was this AMI conference, the Association for Medical Education, which was supposed to be run in Glasgow, which was held online. And uh, that in itself was a challenge, but... um, some people had problems with technology, but many of us thought it was a really good experience to meet like that. And I know from some experiences that running a course online sometimes can help the discussions become maybe more focused on the topic because you remove so much peripheral noise because you, you meet when you have something to say or discuss and you write about it online. It is challenging in many ways, but I I think we've learned quite a bit, even about running a conference about medical education, and uh, the same goes for teaching, I think. so. And it's forced all of us to do so much online, so I think it, it has been valuable in many ways, and we will continue. And of course, as you said, virtual patients uh, is maybe one part of it. I mean, we're not going to be sitting with virtual patients only all the time, but it's it's a It's a good tool that fits well into online teaching, I think. So where do you see your research taking you in the coming months or years? What are your plans? I think um, I will continue addressing the same kinds of problems that I I have been doing now in all sorts of areas that looking at digging into the gaps and difficulties and challenges that learners. And when when I talk about learners, I think not only about students, at a university in a, in a medical program, for instance. That's one typical case. But I often work with practitioners at a hospital or patients uh, who need to learn about their uh, condition or even their relatives so who need to know about their, uh, their family members' condition. So, so we have projects in all, with all these different types of learners. And using maybe in the future and uh, onwards, more interesting methods and tools to run studies on this. And video is one one way of doing it. It's really powerful, as, as I said, but it's also very time-consuming to do video analysis. But there are interesting other tools. Everybody is carrying around a smartphone today, and uh, these can be very uh, handy for collecting data. Just letting learners take notes about what they're doing what they're thinking, reflecting on what, what, what their problem is right now, that can be a good way of um, capturing the, the interesting data about their practice. That can help us understand what happened last Tuesday at 11 o'clock, and which can be really valuable for us as educators. So I, I think more and more of that will help us run interesting studies. And also, I, I think um, 
a lot of my studies have a sort of design science character. And I think the field of medical education is it's a, it's a design science. We, we, it's not a natural science, really. Many of us have a biomedical background somehow, which is good because it helps us understand the problems in this, in this world. But the type of research is often quite different. In education, medical education, we often want to change what's going on. We want to improve learning and we want to help the, the learners and the teachers work in a new way, which is different. We're, we introduce educational practices or we introduce a new tool. So we don't really want to just collect data about what is right now. We want to change something. And we have a lot to learn about how other design sciences are working, and not only about running large biomedical type research studies. So I think that's that's one thing that's got to affect the research area quite a bit. And we have much to learn from that area. Class Kahlgren. In the next episode, I'll be discussing the exploration of power dynamics and equity in the context of global health educational partnerships with Dr. Dawit Wandermegan, consultant psychiatrist at the University of Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Until then, goodbye.